From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you a tandem of tandem announcements. Which ranks highest and lowest banks in UK in 2018? Guess who tops the list? And Harry Potter, Kano and Apple team up to help kids learn to code. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 273 of Fintech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork Altgate. One of the last episodes here will be moving soon, but more on that later. My name is Simon Taylor, and I'm your host for today, and I'm joined by my colleague, co-host, and one of my favorite humans, Leda Glyptus. How are you? I am very well. I now even have a badge that says I'm Simon's favorite human thing, which I wear with great pride. Indeed. Everybody needs a badge. Um, Don't forget, if you have any questions for us or you want a badge, um, then drop us a note at podcast at 11fs.com or find us on social media. And as alone, uh, thank God uh, we're not alone. Uh, We are surrounded by people who know a lot of stuff about fintech as well. Uh, We're joined by Dave Cunningham, returning uh, CEO of Privity. David, how are you? I am great. Best ever. Best ever. Good to have you back. Thanks for joining us. And uh, Ryan Weeks, who's editor at Alt5. First time. How are you, Ryan? I'm good. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Looking forward to it. All right. Let's get on with the news. Um, and so the first story, um, why the lack of trust, guys? So comes from Finextra. Uh, Swiss banks apparently have been raided by an antitrust watchdog over mobile payment allegations. So this group of Swiss banks are under investigation um, because apparently services from Apple and Samsung uh, were being used in order to improve the prospects of their own competitive offering called Twint. So there's a question about whether the Swiss banks had boycotted payment services from Apple and Samsung in order to improve the prospects of their own competitive offering called Twint, which is a funny name. Um, Offices at UBS, Credit Suisse, Post Finance, Swiss Card and uh, Duno Holding um, have been raided over allegations that they deliberately refused to release their debit cards for use by Apple Pay and Samsung Pay. Um, And of course, Twint is a mobile app developed by Post Finance and used by the bank. Um, and they've expressed astonishment at the watchdog's action. Uh, action sorry, uh, and uh, Credit Suisse and UBS were equally nonplussed by the raise. We are surprised by the investigation and convinced that these allegations will be proven baseless. Um, very strong statements here. Um, you know, it, we saw similar things uh, a couple of years ago in the Australian market, where um, there was, you know, uh, I think there was an antitrust watchdog or, or similar who said, you know, the big four banks there had uh, colluded against Apple, but of course Apple have been known for strong-arming people in the past as well when it comes to things so uh, this fight for the customer goes on and on um i I mean my my reading of this story is it's you know it's it's obviously difficult to get to the bottom of but i think that um banks haven't really earned the benefit of the doubt when it comes to these sorts of you know how they treat their competition you know it reminds me of a story i've been writing a lot recently for altfire about uh, peer-to-peer lending um banks have been sort of lobbying against peer-to-peer quietly and they've just outed themselves lately um, and, you know, while also lobbying against a new industry, they're launching lending platforms of their own. So this feels somewhat similar to me. And I think, you know, while it's difficult to get to the bottom of, um, I find it difficult to sort of buy the bank's version of events. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of it. But it's not so long ago that we believed it to be a bank's choice. Remember, people would advertise that now it's available in our cards, available in Apple Pay, that quite a lot of countries where it's still perfectly legal and considered legit for a bank to choose whether they want to participate. So for me, the most interesting thing is that the regulators continue to be the sort of little rascals of the story saying, no, no, 
change is coming. Uh -huh. And if you don't want to bring it to the table, we will make sure you do. So irrespective of what the investigation brings, even if um, it's not as damning as it could be, I think it will be next to impossible to continue blocking them, which, which is a win for the regulator and for the consumer. But um, what about Apple not letting banks use the NFC of, on their phones? Right? Yeah, I that mean, did happen. <laughs> that was a thing. Yeah. And, and so this, this is kind of the point, right? I mean, Apple have the device and they were arguably being uh, anti-competitive. And, of course, you've seen the European Union come down historically on Microsoft and then Google for anti-competitive practices in their browsers uh, and search. But nothing's ever happened against Apple on, on that payment side. Um, but I guess, you know, the banks are in this position of still being flagellated for, you know, post-financial crisis. They're still sort of public enemy a little bit. And I wonder if, you know, really, this does feel to me a little bit like the banks were trying to do something competitive, but not that nothing that Apple hasn't done themselves. Well, yeah. So all's fair sort of scenario. It's an interesting question. They said it in in the uh, in that Twint also asked Comco to investigate discriminatory behavior by Apple because Apple prevents the trouble-free use of the Twint app on iOS devices. I mean, if if the, if that's the case, you know, is this not? I love that the banks basically went, "You started it." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> mom, they started it. It wasn't me. But then yeah. Apple can always say, "Well, when people buy." Our devices, they accept and they kind of hand over their lives to us mm. for the sake of convenience. And there is an opt-in thing. And if you don't like it, sucks to be you. Their argument is typically they're, they're looking after the experience, which, you know, everything has to follow their rules, which is, you know. I can mock it all I like. But if you look through my bag, it's Apple everything. So obviously buying into it. It might be a news question as well. You know, it's really easy to pitch the banks as the bad guys in the news. You know, it, it, it makes headlines. Um, I mean, it, I was reminded by the story of a kind of a bank raid story that happened last year when I think it was Dutch banks were kind of trying to um, pervert the process of PSD2 um, and so that it was a bank raid on their offices it probably just meant the regulator went around visited them and had a chat. meeting yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. are you suggesting that banks somewhere were not really fully embracing open banking oh, <laughs> never suggest such a thing you mean fear threat kill it go away okay seriously it's happened earlier on in this show but like Recovering banker hat back on. What they did was legal before it was flagged as potentially problematic. And and if we want competitiveness and creativity, that's what it looks like. Now, it is entirely possible that it's a journalist picking up on a meeting and going, let's see how far I can accelerate this. And and I'm pretty sure that irrespective of what the regulator does, this will change things. It's interesting that we tend to um, bash the banks for not being innovative enough. And then when they try it, they get uh, in trouble on the other side. <laughs> damned if they do, damned if they don't. I'll take but, my hat off. You can wear it. Um, wow. Um, it's, a, it's a cozy hat. It's cold <laughs> outside today. Um, all right. Next up is a tandem of tandem stories. Um, tandem are working in tandem to launch in Asia. Um, so Tandem Bank, everybody loves a comeback story. Uh, of course, a year or two ago, um, they seemed somewhat troubled. And now they seem to be, uh, well, the first story comes from the FT. And they're striking a deal in, to launch digital banking in Asia and specifically in Hong Kong um, by striking a deal with Hong Kong's Convoy Global Holdings as a part to secure funding to launch one of the first digital banks in Hong Kong. As we saw, Standard Chartered are looking to do virtual banks there. There's a lot happening in Hong Kong at the moment. Fintech is, is coming to that part of the world. 
Convoy are planning to take a £15 million stake in Tandem, one of the first app-based banks out of the UK, of course. Um, and the launch would be among, yeah, as I've said, a first wave of uh, digital lenders in Hong Kong. Uh, the top four banks hold about 75% of the local mortgage, credit card markets, according to research by Goldman Sachs. So uh, some 30 companies had applied for the licenses in August, and the numbers cut back after HKMA found applications for around 10% of the companies were incomplete. And this, of course, was the virtual banking license that uh, that we saw. Interesting, again, that we see a market in which the regulator tries to democratize access, and then you get a wave of companies uh, getting involved. And before we dive into this one, we actually spoke to the Tandem CEO, Ricky Knox, to tell us more about this. Let's hear from him now. Super excited uh, to announce our partnership with Convoy. This came about because really Tandem sees, you know, the digital banking revolution, which I you know LFNFS has spent a lot of time on as a global phenomenon, not a not a local one. And despite the fact that I'm half American, um, I have uh, spent significant time building regulated businesses in the U.S. before with small financial services, and uh, know that that can be a, a challenging process. I also think there's an exciting opportunity, not only in Europe, which I think is is clearly uh, an exciting market, but as we look more broadly to Asia, um, we've been looking for a partner and a jumping off point for Asian expansion. And Convoy have been very active investing in the UK recently with Nutmeg um, and Currency Fair. And we were excited to find somebody who not only could help on working on local market localization and an application for a Hong Kong banking license, because we think Hong Kong is an interesting standalone market, but a relatively small one, but also had deep experience of running banks across the region, as we think the broader opportunity is is not just to expand in into Hong Kong, but to expand into multiple markets there. So... To be clear, the, obviously, the beginning of that partnership, they have invested a uh, in a stake in tandem. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a small minority stake, but uh, really to sort of seal that deal and seal the partnership. And the next phase will be us helping them not only with their application, but also with the uh, if they receive a license with rolling out their bank in Hong Kong. But that's really the first step towards a, uh, a broader Asian expansion plan. So there's 29 applicants for banking licenses in Hong Kong, including, as I understand it, although not sure it's public, a couple of our European uh, uh, digital counterparts. And so um, they expect to have about seven banking licenses, my understanding. Um, I think um, certainly Convoy's strong view, and I'd say our view as well, is um, that having the operational expertise and understanding what it takes to roll out a fully regulated bank which again, not all of our European counterparts are, um, is a very strong basis um, since there's very strong links between the HKMA and uh, the PRA here in the UK. So I think, uh, and Convoy is um, one of the largest sort of non-bank financial institutions in Hong Kong. It has a, a big wealth management business, insurance business, with one of the larger high net worth customer bases in the in the region. So you know they're a, they're a well-established player over there. And uh, so I think you know obviously to prejudge the regulators' decision would be um, would be rash. Um, and all that's happened for the moment is the convoy's taken a stake in tandem. Uh, clearly, what we will be doing is investing in, in assisting them with that licensing process. Uh, but we should find that out reasonably soon. It'll look an awful lot like tandem. 
I mean, we have yet to decide whether from a local market perspective, Tandon is the best brand. Uh, and also we're, you know, um, protective of our brand as well. Um, however, the bank will, will look very much like Tandem. Be running the Tandem platform, Tandem services, Tandem products. Um, uh, it will look a lot like us. All right, a big thank you to Ricky. Um, and before we let the guests dive into that one, um, we've got to get to their next story. Of course, they teamed up with Stripe to launch auto savings. So um, they've uh, let customers set up rules to automatically move money from their current accounts uh, with other providers into a savings account from Tandem. Features available through Tandem's banking app, aggregating financial data from across all of the users' accounts um, and giving them personalized feedback on how they're managing their money. Um, It also uses some technology to calculate where savings can be made. Um, And speaking about the new service, the UK and Ireland country manager of Stripe, uh, who's Ian McDougall, stated, building on infrastructure that powers programmatic movement of money will be increasingly seen as a differentiator for technology companies, emerging fintechs and even established financial services providers. Interesting move from Stripe, interesting move from Tandem. Lots to unpick here in the last two stories. Where to start? I had a savings account from Barclays that sounded a lot like that in 1997. Really? Yeah. How so? Um, It didn't have the app, obviously, given it was before you were born, right? But um, (laughs) I was five. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like, jokes aside... It will all be about how the experience is delivered because there there is nothing particularly unusual or original in either the, the, the service of sort of having programmatic savings just means sweeps, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or having an algorithm that says, you know, you're spending too much on shoes later, cut it down. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be all about the experience. But what, what we're, we're seeing, interestingly, is that the consumer doesn't behave the way we either want them to or, or expect them to. And, and it will be interesting to see what Tandem find in both of those moves because Hong Kong is historically a very traditional banking environment. People tend to be very static in their banking choices. Similarly, people have gone through the excitable time of interacting heavily with their banking apps. And I was like, okay, I'll just use it when I... I think there's a few things going on here. So on one side, you've got them partnering to launch digital banking with an investment from somebody who knows the market, who's putting cash in. And also, uh, they'd they'd been through, you know, quite a... uh, back and forth about do they have a banking license do they not have a, a banking license um, because there was the china's sand power group which um, at the time owned house of fraser reneged on a deal to inject 29 million into tandem on due to uncertainty about whether china's state administration of foreign exchange would approve the transaction and of course this then puts tandem who were one of the you know sort of big three or four uk challenger banks suddenly into a lot of distress uh, would these guys disappear and this is a real comeback story that yes they found an investor in hong kong so they're going to have to do you know really double down there and now with a virtual banking license they find that interesting but then on this other side in the uk they've kind of got this pfm piece with some savings they've really pivoted successfully and i think what we haven't seen so much of is the challenger banks um using somebody like a stripe who's well known i know starling and tandem also use a company called form three who provide a lot of access to local clearing i think that sort of provider side of fintech is the most unknown side and the really exciting side 
I think sort of off the back of that cancelled deal with the Sam Power Group, was it? I think they've they've always since then they've done a number of slightly sort of strange and unexpected moves. You know, the acquisition of Harrods. I think you know no one was quite expecting that. They told us a funny story about how they had to update their sort of CRM systems and they had Sir, but they didn't have Dame, so they had to sort of go through a whole kind of like re-engineering of that, and then. Um, I guess high you class know, problems. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Talk then, about first world problems. Yeah, exactly. And peculiarly British yeah. problems. Yeah. And then I think you know the expat community in Hong Kong, which is obviously quite big. That, that's probably a, a group that's quite ideally suited to digital banks because you know they'll be sending money back and forth possibly. And um, and yeah. And then I think on the auto savings piece, you're probably seeing there the hand of uh, Matt Ford, uh, who used to run Parity at play and ah. Tandem bought Parity, and Parity was kind of like a, you know they look at all of your finances across accounts and they tell you how much you could afford to spend each month. Well, Matt's probably, he's now, I think, like chief product officer. He's probably quite enjoying the chance to actually move money around besides just giving insights that he hopes people act off. So Interesting times. Uh, Ricky also gave us some insights on this partnership. So let's get back to him now to find out a little bit more. I think, you know, Tandem is obviously very happy to partner with Stripe. I think a lot of people partner with Stripe already uh, for payment solutions. But but ultimately, this is a much bigger thing than that for Tandem. We're launching a transactional savings account. So up till today, Tandem has had, you know, credit card products in the market, loan products, mortgages and fixed term savers. But we've not had a day to day savings or current account in the market. And this is a transactional account that will be, although not on immediate launch, a an account that you can pay your friends from, that you can transact with on a regular basis. Uh, the first application of that and the, the use case and the customer need that we're looking to serve is those of our customers who have a bit of trouble saving. They've got goals and things that they'd like to be doing but aren't able to put money aside. And so what we're doing is providing a service that allows them to save more easily, whether that's through top-ups, round-ups, you know, through uh, regular saving, or even through, you know, passing past Starbucks and deciding they're not going to have that cup of coffee and, and making a one-off contribution to their savings goal. So that is, Stripe is obviously powering that from a payments perspective. So the way Tandem platform works now, is you can see all your Barclays or HSBs or Lloyd's accounts in your Tandem app. Uh, you can also obviously see your Tandem savings accounts or credit cards, etc. But you'll here be able to link and make a payment out of using Stripe out of your uh, essentially off your debit card into your Tandem savings account uh, for the purposes of auto savings. So pre PSD two sort of full implementation. Um, uh, that's how we'll be connecting your Barclays account and your Tandem account, both of which you can see in our app. Alrighty, thank you, Ricky. Lydia, you had just one more point before we move I on. I always have one more point. Um, I think it's an interesting move to actually calibrate their partnerships much better. To, to, to Ryan's point, they've done some strange things. Neither of the partnerships they've brought to the table now are actually either odd or, if you think about it, unexpected. They're clever, they're, they're muscular, they're, they're sort of in the right place. But they both are premised on some fundamental assumptions about behaviours. Hong Kong has historically not gone for them. Mm-hmm. sort of gimmicky and digital. We've seen a couple of the incumbents move in to see if the needle will move. We haven't seen any indication that it is happening yet. Similarly, um, the the behavioral assumptions that would make the partnership with Stripe a success are very, are very specific. So although the, the partnerships themselves make imminent sense, the, the go-to-market is so premised on a behavior that we're not seeing take root that it 
it's it's a massive gamble and a, and a very interesting one to watch. I, th- I think it's a really interesting. I think absolutely right, Leda. Um, you know what? I, what I do love is that. Well, first of all, uh, Stripe does another thing. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. they're just knocking it out of the park these days. I think they're Irish, are they? Yeah, yeah, they're good. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, they're good. <laughs> yeah, don't imagine. But you know, uh, I ran this conference in 2016, the, the Lean Startup, and at the time it was Adam Tandem and Monzo was what I called ATM, and then Starling was come along, and I remember uh, Liz Lumley saying, "Well, it's ATMs at mm. the time," and then Adam and and Tandem kind of fell off the radar a little bit and then Monzo Starling and, and then Revolut were just coming to life at the time came along. So I think in the, you know, you got to admire the perseverance and, yeah. the, and, and the continued fight. And look, I hope things really work out because, you know, it's so hard. Uh, if re- anything, the takeaway for me here is I'm really pulling for them. There's yeah. a lot yeah, of great agree. people that totally. have worked in Tandem um, that, uh, you know, we've had several join us, for instance. And there's, mm. um, you know, a lot of great people still there. And Ricky's... Uh, heck of a CEO and uh, just never bet against the guy. Um, yeah, absolutely. Great. So shout out to those guys doing doing good things. Um, all right. So next story um, comes from Quartz and it says, people who use mobile fintech apps tend to make worse <laughs> financial decisions. So the study of mobile payment uh, using millennials, whatever they are. Um, ages, I have one to my left right now. Um, ages 18 Yo. to 34 in the US found they were less likely to be financially literate of others of the same age who didn't pay for things with their phones. Um, they were also more likely to make other bad financial decisions, according to research by the Global Financial Literacy Excellence Center at the George Washington School of Business, because they like long names. Um, apparently, one in four people who use their phones to track spending reported overdrawing on their accounts compared with 20% of those who didn't. So it's that's not a massive percentage difference, really, is it? Mm. One in four versus uh, also, it's, it's what, like five percent yeah. difference. I mean, is that not a rounding error anyway? But it's also all the other factors. Who in that age group doesn't use their phone, and what other yeah. behavioural factors set them apart? Because I'm pretty sure that if you actually did some product, proper research in this, the picture that would emerge would be quite quite telling, and the phone would be possibly the least significant factor. It's a good headline, though. Yeah, well, it's an excellent headline, yeah. and when, right? And when you look at it, actually, the the differences between eighteen percent and twenty one percent on on the actual website when you drill into it, like this is a headline out of absolutely nothing. And also, my general experience of different business schools doing surveys when when I've had to work with them is like. I mean, these are people learning how to do surveys. No, no offense to business schools, but like the sample sizes aren't always the greatest. Um, I, I think there is something, uh, you know, and, and also how are these people defining financial literacy? <laughs> like, it um, means I'm, if you don't use your phone uh, to pay, you're more financially literate is the extension. I mean, have, have I missed this or has somebody uh, made a headline out of a rounding error? You're, 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 you're not a millennial according to that, just... No, yeah, I'm 34. Yeah, I'm just oh. I'm 34 um, in months. Yeah, exactly. So, so that cuts you out. Although in my heart, you are a millennial. Um, I find these pieces of research extremely fascinating because they never disclose how the sample is selected and controlled. Mm-hmm. So you have no visibility into what it is they tested for, how they actually structured the research. But we found a thing. It's like we asked every person in debt in a particular area of town where people. Go because it's ch- cheaper living accommodation and therefore, you know, and we found that they were in debt. You know, that there is so much <clears throat> bias that you can build into a research design exercise that it, it's, 
it's always dangerous to pull results without looking at the research design. And, and also, are people with poor financial habits not the people who need the, yeah. PFM? I mean, I, I know this isn't PFM. This isn't finance management. This is people using mobile payments. Maybe there's something about the instantaneous nature. And, the, you know, I, I think what they're trying to say is that it's frictionless. It rewards sort of uh, that sort of surprise and delight, that um, sort of dopamine rush spending and that um that impulse spending um but but the link to me here is tenuous um there is something important though about do digital services remove friction and is friction removing always the goal or is sometimes had the right bit of friction a good thing in product design i think that's a fair question that they're trying to hint at with the wrong survey so if we put aside the fact that the survey methodology is is a little questionable yeah is the point that they were trying to make an interesting there's point. definitely something interesting there like mm-hmm. and there's almost a slight slight and was a bit of a reach but contradiction in terms in sort of digital banks and things like that which is really easy to pay for stuff which arguably means gets you spending more but then they've got all these budgeting services and stuff to try to help you spend less the thing is though that there's no hard and fast rules there you know i'm a user of one of them and you know i put aside x amount each each month according to what they're recommending or you know in one of those sort of segregated areas of the banking app but it's so easy to just move it back in when you're running low on money and i think that's probably how quite a lot of people operate but but also there's something about making people feel in control of their money and that's the emotional need here right so uh, if it's hard to get at my money it's hard to know where my money is it's hard to know how am i doing versus last month can i afford to buy the thing like at least if i'm becoming more aware i'm making informed decisions well so dave you and i pre-app people Mm. i i just think what the question we're raising is oh oopsie why aren't digital tools making us more responsible it was always easy to overspend <laughs> absolutely you can just tap as well and 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 you don't see the price and you don't know what you're doing i mean it doesn't mean that they uh, as they're paying if you don't use your phone, are you more aware of how much the avocado on toast is costing you? Uh, <laughs> or, you know, I, I think it's just a whole crazy piece. I mean, if you dive into it, and and uh, Laura's highlighted here in the show notes. In the data, we do not have information about what explains that behavior, comma, but making payments easy and mindless may induce people to spend more. I mean, come on, <laughs> this is... We got it, some data and then we made a hypothesis and yeah. the hypothesis was scary, so a headline right to pick yeah, it up from and down with a professor, though, no less. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well. But it's always interesting. If we could control against <laughs> behaviors of a particular group pre these tools and find difference in behavior, then sure. I think what we learned today is that uh, when you publish a study, um, try and get it peer reviewed and publish your methodology if you want it to have credibility on FinTech Inside of the podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Otherwise, we will not stand for poor research <laughs> methodologies. We Damn will right. not. Um, and I like that barrier. I really do. I, for one, am proud of us. Alrighty. Um, next story comes from Finextra. Nationwide have taken a stake in Money Hub. So uh, they're dipping into their 50 million venture fund for a minority stake in UK based PFM management app MoneyHub. MoneyHub is actually the third startup to benefit from the fund after Acasa and Hazy. Tony Prestige, deputy CEO at Nationwide, says uh, investing in startups like MoneyHub helps us identify, learn about, and explore new capabilities and technologies. Of course, MoneyHub um, actually became a PISP, I don't know what you heard about me, um, uh, regulated by the FCA, and is already an AISP. Uh, the company also offers users a series of smart nudges that 
proactively alert consumers to overspending and interest rate offers. This PFM space, like we're going to be an app that links to your um, other apps and we're going to give you the data and be a PFM app and allow you to move money around. This control center thing, there's a lot of of this thing out there, isn't there? And this seems to be just another one, um, but actually one with... It's it's interesting that these investments come at a time when... PSD2 is breathing down everyone's neck. And, oh, look, they have all the right authorizations. So it dovetails quite nicely with with the PSD2 suite of services. Mm. I think in terms of that, it's an inspired move because it allows Nationwide to go forward and say, you know what, I get this. Mm. And I get that you're not going to want everything from me. So here's what I'm doing. I understand how the regulation works and I'm partnering up and actually skin in the game, not just holding mm. hands, um, with someone who's fully accredited and does the things that I expect you as a consumer will need. So in terms of working with the intent of the regulation and doing so in a smart way, I think that's a great move. Do you not worry a bit about when a big financial services institution takes a stake in a PFM? Because, you know, they're all about sort of trying to help the consumer to make the right move for them. And in the US, we've seen a lot of um, kind of big, actually online lenders, but now kind of a decade old, buy PFMs, and they've all killed them within like a year because they just can't fit within their operation because they're designed to recommend, you know, the best product for them. m and is hard. Um, yeah. I think like the best M&A strategy decks um, very rarely turn into working businesses. Um, they, they really make sense if you've got um, two businesses in different geographies where you never have to get them to do the same thing. Like it's much, much harder when you're trying to, I mean, it's been done, but it is just really hard to do yeah, that. Yeah, and, and to be fair, I always worry when a very big organization takes a stake in a smaller, more agile organization because it's not a natural marriage. Mm-hmm. I also always worry when organizations that don't go to market and don't make ma- money in highly compatible ways try to, to come together. I absolutely always worry when that happens. And, and I, I see your point. I think from a, from a nationwide perspective, this move makes perfect sense. From a money hub perspective, they will need to be uh, extremely vigilant. And I'm hoping and guessing that they have thought about these challenges and either put some parameters in place that that help protect them or maybe we will see a pivot in how they they place their service Alrighty. well um to find out more we spoke to emma huntington who's the leader in financial services strategy and innovation at nationwide to give us their perspective on the partnership Money Hub is a fantastic business that helps people, and in our case, our members, to think about managing their money in the way that they actually manage their lives. So it's really in touch with, it it, it aggregates all of your different pieces of your financial picture from banking and insurance to investments to pensions uh, and more. And so it really reflects how people actually make decisions. Most importantly for Nationwide, when we met the Money Hub team, we saw that like us, they have this absolute ethos of being on on the side of the customer. So the combination of what they do and their, their sort of purpose or philosophy and how they do it is completely aligned with Nationwide. And that's why we invested in them. So at the moment, the partnership is a pure equity investment. So we've taken a stake in their business. And we do that because we want to tap into innovation and strategic capability for the future. So not necessarily things that we could deploy in our business today, but things that we'll want for the future. And also so that we can learn from these businesses. So the deep 
capabilities in both propositions around, you know, financial management, but also open banking and open APIs more broadly is of real interest to us. And learning from Sam and her team around how they're doing that is a great opportunity. In return, it's a true partnership. So what Money Hub get is um, nationwide support and help to develop their business to grow. So it's really synergistic. We're not there to overwhelm Money Hub or to take them over. We're there just just to have this strategic insight into what they're doing. And of course, we have a whole open banking program within Nationwide. And that work um, continues and is, you know, synergistic with the investment in Money Hub. So it just adds to our learning and adds to our capability. So typically what we do with the venturing team at Nationwide is, as I've just described, we'll take an investment in a business because we want that strategic capability and learning. And then our business owners, in this case for Money Hub, it would probably be our proposition owners who take a real interest in what they're doing and start to explore that and then think about how might we use that capability in our business, in propositions. So that could be across banking and mortgages uh, and other areas of our business, yeah. That was Emma. And we also spoke to Sam Seaton, who's the CEO of Money Hub, to get her thoughts on this investment as well. Let's hear from her now. So I think we were very uh, fortunate because the timing of the Nationwide uh, Venture Fund and us as Money Hub doing a fundraise coincided and I had met uh, some of the Ventures team um, in, in previous work environments. So we were um, familiar with each other, which was great because, you know, you know, you know how they say some things are just meant to be. Well, I really genuinely think that that was how this came about. So we met and realized that there was an alignment in what they were seeking to do with the Venture Fund and obviously with Money Hub, what we were aiming to do. I think the, the most important thing about what we've achieved uh, with this investment is the fact that the alignment between what Nationwide aim to do for their members is exactly the same that Money Hub aims to do for the businesses uh, that we work with and the customers of those businesses. You know, we're incredibly focused on having what we call a people-first platform. So what that means, in all honesty, is actually building something from the consumer up, whereas so often things get built from what I call the business down or the product down or the service down. And and so it's kind of, the to me, the wrong way around. Whereas if you build from the consumer up, then actually you get things right and success and businesses thrive as a result. And that is the right way to go about it. So that that really was really the, the fundamental alignment that we're very excited about. I think the immediate next steps obviously are to look at where we can benefit from the work that Nationwide have done in the past and to date with open banking and the ideas that they have that are transformational for their members, but also where we might be able to add some value because of some of the work that we've done in the past uh, with our consumer base and with some of the knowledge that we've gained. So I think at the moment, we're just exploring where where best that can be put to good effect, which I think is is great. But on top of that, what's really, really good is that uh, nationwide want money hub to be a successful business so as, as an enterprise ourselves we are focused on still uh, providing a b2b service and and i think that um that is that is lovely to have the support and the i guess the i guess the drive behind the business and the credibility that i think the nationwide investment has brought which you know genuinely gives everyone a lot more confidence in the industry and with the direction of travel for open banking more widely i think 
All right. Thank you both, Emma and Sam. Uh, I think that's really interesting. I mean, if, let's say, uh, a large incumbent bank was to go about saying, OK, how are we going to build a PFM? I mean, it would take them ages to do it unless they could come across a really great challenger consultancy, perhaps, to help them do that. But other than that route forward... Uh, Buying a stake in someone like uh, Money Hub just brings that expertise to the large organization. It's just going to really just roadmap how they can engage with their customers better. So I think it's a really clever move because we, what we've seen from open banking uh, is that it is really hard to bring new services out uh, and and to get them to have traction. And it's expensive and there's been so much consultancy done around it, but yet the consumer isn't reaping the benefits. So- the end product has been limited. And while you mm-hmm. have seen end product, I thought you, you sold partnerships. Um, yeah. So First Direct uh, did a partnership with Bud and got an app out mm. into the market. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, partnering when done right, it yeah. can be extremely effective. Um, and partnering when done right with a clear execution path with people you know can execute is so much better than just, hey, I don't know about this. You do that thing. Let's invest in you. And, it, mm. and, and I think all intents here are from Nationwide and MoneyHub aren't to do that, right? They, they clearly have, want, and I believe, have an execution path in place. But the lesson learned from when this works, it's when you have an execution path. Because I'm pretty certain if you're sitting in a bank, uh, you either work in or know somebody who works in some open banking program somewhere. (laughs) And how much of that has really come to market? There's APIs out there, um, but everybody's done kind of just enough and declared success. But that consumer benefit isn't really there. And, you know, you've seen little examples of it coming from the edge. And maybe it's going to be things like this. Maybe it's going to be something else that grabs it. Uh, But it's interesting, though. When you start at how do I solve open banking, that's in one place to start. Mm -hmm. Another place to start is what does a customer want? (laughs) And I know that sounds crazy, but rather than sort of your brief being how do I make open banking work, if your brief is let's go talk to a lot of customers and figure out what their challenge is in the market – Open banking is one tool we have. Then you you flip you flip it around a little bit, and if your thesis is, well, how do I bring together things for uh, this segment of society and all of their data? What you build might end up looking quite different um, than just. And I don't mean to belittle it, but there's a lot of PFM out there, right? Mm-hmm. And this, dear listeners, is what a recovered banker sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, um, it's time for a break. How can Sam afford the latest smartphone while she's at university? It must cost her parents a fortune to send her there. Oh, she's fine. She can just borrow the cash and pay it back when she bags a high-powered graduate job. Well, the tuition fees alone must be nearly £30,000. Well, she'll be earning a lot more than that after a couple of years. But imagine starting your career with £60,000 worth of debt. Hmm. Yeah, you could buy plenty of smartphones with that. Millennials. Future consumers or debt slaves. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash join us. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, 
transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider and shout out to the Terry Wogan of Fintech himself, (laughs) (laughs) Ross G. Gallagher, uh, for his wonderful advert interlude. And I think it was actually you that named him G, wasn't it? Uh, Well, uh, maybe the Terry Wogan of Fintech. I mean, Ross is a graduate of of, uh, National University of Ireland Galway, which is uh, where I'm from and where I went to. And, uh, you know, it was really cool to find out there was an NUIG graduate working at Fintech Insiders. And then with that silky smooth voice, I mean, what's not to love? What's not to love about Gur himself? Um, uh, Listeners, remember, Slush 2018 is just around the corner. And last year, we took Fintech Insider live to Finland for the first time. Um, And it was OP's one-of-a-kind beach party. And believe me, this thing was something to behold. I remember drinking out of a coconut on a beach in Helsinki. That was weird. In Uh, winter. An indoor Mm. beach. Uh, if you be at Slush on Tuesday, the 4th of December, uh, we'll be turning this year's OP after party up and not sure to 11 if you prefer by opening the show with a very special Fintech Insider Live. Head to op-lab.fi for more details. Shout out to the guys at OP as well. You're All down right. at OP, right? Oh, we're down with OP. Okay, cool. Uh, you know me. All right, uh, <laughs> on with the show. Um, next story Later's trying not to laugh. Uh, comes from which um, they've ranked the best and worst banks of 2018. They surveyed thousands of current account customers and asked them to rate which service they receive and uh, assigned each account a which customer score. Then they independently rate 40 providers to create a product score based on 38 different elements of bank accounts, including rewards, benefits, fees, charges, and. In a surprise to nobody, Monzo tops out the rankings overall. Um, but Monzo, First Direct, Nationwide, and MS Bank are the highest recommended. Um, first Direct in second place. Um, they were typically first in recent years, but this is the first time Monzo's featured. Um, notably, this is the first time Monzo's had a large enough sample to be included, sign of the times. Um, the worst bank is poor old TSB. Um, oh, sad. With a customer score of 58%, TSB's fallen from fourth to joint bottom in the table, making it the worst bank for customer satisfaction, along with the Bank of Ireland. Sorry, Dave. Sorry, Dave. Oh, well, Bank of Ireland are <laughs> undergoing uh, um, some pretty cool things at the moment and some change. So I think they'll be shooting up pretty soon. It's the only way's up, right? It, well, yeah. Wow. I'm now thinking of a 1997 Labour uh, Party conference, <laughs> <laughs> which is a very niche reference. But if you haven't seen it, Google the only way is up in 1997 and Labour Party, you'll be you'll be very happy. But getting back to the story, the M&S ranking, you know, surprisingly high for a brand challenger bank, way higher than uh, their owner, HSBC, and, and also First Direct always score really highly. The brand challenges beat the incumbents that own them. That's that's something. Um, and of course, Monzo topping the chart. Starlink doesn't yet make an appearance, but Monzo has over that threshold of a million users now. Um, and it's also the first time Monzo have been mentioned. Um, Monzo topped the chart, but it's got a surprisingly low product score. But then... A lot of the subcategories don't actually apply. Um, so if you have a whole bunch of categories that don't apply to you and you still win, it's a pretty good pretty sign. Good. Mm. Their servicing branch isn't great by the looks of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very interesting thing, though, because if you think about it, we are all increasingly multi-banked. It, it is becoming increasingly unlikely for people to have only one bank. Definitely anyone who has an account with a challenger 
We'll probably have more than one account with a challenger and we'll have a couple of high street bank accounts. Uh, some of us are foreign, so we will have that experience in multiple countries. So you're essentially running a mini witch in your own phone, whatever you yeah. need to do, because you will comparatively... And, you know, anytime you need to do something like update your address, you have to do it in a number of apps. Every time you need to set up a payment, you, you, you do the comparative yourself. So it would be very interesting to see whether the way people answer the questions has changed. Because there was a time, an innocent time before oh. you were born, Ryan, when people only had one Getting bank account. <laughs> Ageist. Well, just old. <laughs> But there was, another, another way of looking at yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. There was a time when people only had one bank account, and so the questions were absolute, right? But now you have color yourself because it is highly unlikely that you only have the one. Uh, we are now um, polybanked um, instead of monobanked. It has mm. definitely changed. And um, I think that uh, polyamory and banking relationships is actually a, a real development. <laughs> No, no, that wasn't intended works, to be works. funny. That was that was like genuine. Like people have more than one current account, and that's normal. Yeah, but and they, they don't need to love the current account. Well, you could though. There's yeah, but you don't need to. I think it's fundamentally irrelevant. You should be helpful, useful, trustworthy, reliable, and kind of mostly out of the way. But a lot of digital banks want you to just use them. Like, uh, not necessarily even digital banks. Like a Yolt wants to just be that one provider for all of your needs. So, you know, are they kind of rowing against the tide? Yeah, I think way? so. I, I, I had this conversation, um, I'll end it this week with, with a bunch of people, and I, I personally... Oh, I high five. High five. Um, <laughs> I personally think so. I, I think it is uh, the business models that rely on you being multi-banked and multi-serviced mm -hmm. um, that will win out. Because people will will very easily switch from one thing to another in a non-permanent way. And we're, we are actually seeing the growth of the people whose business model accepts that, yeah. accelerate like crazy. Yeah. So they accept reality rather than fight against it. Um, I, I think, Dave, you made an interesting point earlier. Monzo scored nothing for telephone banking, nothing for servicing branch, nothing for online banking, and weirdly, nothing for value for money. Um, so there's definitely something there. But then there are um, others. <laughs> hey, there are like pots now. Metro scored zero for, well, not nothing, but like didn't score. You know, they, they've just blanked out for application process so obviously there's some things that are that, that are quite odd in the scoring but it is a sign of the times but um enough what we think we actually went and spoke to the good people of london and asked them if they liked their banking with their bank who, who do you bank with it's monzo and nationwide okay so why do you have a nationwide account and a monzo account Uh, nationwide, I switch for the incentives. Um, okay. They've got a pretty good teaser rate and yeah, initial incentive. Um, Monzo for the personal finance tools, and it's kind of like my day-to-day -day spending one. Okay. Who are you with before Nationwide? Uh, Co-op. Rank those three. Uh, Monzo first, Nationwide second, Co-op third. Why don't you like Co-op? What was bad about them? A lack of functionality and things you could do. Their mobile app wasn't great. Um, I was pretty much just with them because I inherited it from my parents. But bang with, with um, HSBC. Okay. Do you like um, HSBC? Not particularly. Well, why not? Because um, I get fraud calls all the time, which is you quite fraud calls, which is quite worrying and settling. Yeah, every, every time I, I travel quite a lot, so every time I go to an international country, um, I should probably let them know before I go. But who does that? Right? Yeah. So it's, yeah, yeah. Um, I get a lot of calls. Um, from them which kind of makes me a little bit worried about my account mm, um, and also the kind of day-to-day -day uses for a bank is not applicable to uh, you know 
the benefit to Monza is because you can freeze your pin when you need to. Um, you get a breakdown of your spending um, when you need to. If you forget your pin, um, it flashes up for two minutes or two mm. seconds and you get that. So kind of basic features that kind of high street banks just don't provide. Who do you bank with? Nationwide. Do you enjoy using Nationwide? Not a lot. Why not? Because it's kind of like, I feel like misplaced loyalty to them. Huh. Yeah. What My do you have? My parents banked with uh, them. Yeah. Oh dear. I feel like I'm tied in to the heart, but I shouldn't be. Have you ever thought about leaving? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, who, if you had to leave, where would you go? Monzo. Oh, why is that? Because they, it's just so much easier. I still have to get out my card reader every time I make a transaction. Who do you bank with? NatWest. Do you enjoy using NatWest? Neutral opinion neutral, of neutral. my fondness What would you rank them, them out of ten? Eight. Eight? That's interesting. Loyalty. What do you like about them? If you're They're them the only bank I've ever banked with, so it's the only thing I know. Have you ever considered leaving? Yes. To? Anywhere that would give me a free student travel card. So that would be the only, like an incentive would be the only reason you'd, you'd change? An incentive, yeah. I don't understand interest rates enough. But you wouldn't move to something that's, say, easier to use, for example? It's quite easy to use as it is. Oh, interesting. Fair I play use Monzo okay. as well, but not as a current account, more as just a way to monitor my spend from uh-huh. my NatWest account. Okay, cool, cool. So what do you like about Monzo? The usability on the phone. Who, who, do, you, uh, who do you bank with? Monzo. Is that the only bank you have? I've also got HSBC. Do you, enjoy, do you enjoy HSBC, the no. service? No. Why don't you like HSBC? Because they are very bad at updating my transactions and they make it very difficult to make payments on the fly and to add new pays. Why do you prefer Monzo? Because they do all of those things a lot better. So, um, who, who do you bank with? Monzo. Do you not have a uh, traditional bank account? Uh, no, so I closed it. So I used to oh. use HSBC and I'll bank with Monzo. Why didn't you like HSBC? Do you know what? Uh, the app was so clangy. The cost when uh, I was traveling abroad. And I think they're just not cool as well. Who do you bank with? Nationwide. Do you enjoy their service? Only because that's the only one I've had since I was young. Okay. What would you give them out of 10? I'm a loyalist, so like a good seven. Is there anything you don't like about them? The fact that they can't make a mobile app correctly. <laughs> who, do you, who do you think would rank top of the table in like a banking league? Like best bank to worst bank? I'm not particularly sure because I've never really shopped around, but Monzo does look good right now. All right, a real mix of the great and the good from an office near Oldgate in London. Um, so interesting point that stood out to me there was this uh, this point one of the folks made about uh, one, they'd switch to one of the mainstream banks because of the rates, but two, they were using Monzo anyway because of how much the product drew them in. That, that was observation number one. And they originally had, I think it was a co-op bank account, and they got that one because that's the one their parents had. I wonder how often this story would come up. How, how true is it that you start with one bank account, you went somewhere else for the rate, and somewhere else for your day-to-day spend? Like, 
that seems to be normal. And I think, Lita, that was the point you were making, that if you assume that that is true, then the question is, where do you play in that new landscape? You're not. There's not one bank account to roll them all anymore. Exactly. And what we, we're seeing in quite a lot of the research that comes out is that people will only close down an account if there is something exceptionally mishandled. I definitely relate to that. I've had over the years, you know, fraud really badly mishandled. And it is only then that I have said, you know what, I'm taking my business away. The rest of the time, you just add features. And and I have not seen any users of the new services who are not multi-banked. So I think there is the um, there was someone on, on on the clip we just heard who just closed the rest their their other account. It sounded vague, vaguely French, so I'm assuming there is a French bank account some, somewhere in there. It is highly unlikely for um, for people who use the digital challengers not to feel entitled to to multiple services. Mm-hmm. I was one of those people who inherited a bank account. So I, you know, through my parents, I inherited Barclays, if if you see what I mean. Like they opened a Barclays account for me and I was with them until age, I don't know, 24, 25, something like that. Um, And I actually recently bit the bullet and switched fully to using the current account switch service to a digital bank. Mm -hmm. And nothing horrendous had happened. And I I actually, the reason I did it is because, you know, I write about this space and I know it quite well. And I just thought, well, it's better and there's a really good switching service. And that should just be enough. You should just I'll commit. I can do this. It's mental that we're in a situation where, like, you know, there's something better out there, but you really face a barrier about it. So if you're on a bank strategy team right now and you're writing your business cases and your strategy for 2019, um, which you know, I imagine one or two listeners might be in the position of. What do you say to them if you're in a big bank strategy team? I mean, it's really difficult. I understand lots of people are thinking about this at consultancies, and that's not what I do. But what I, you know, what I would say is, you know, try to emphasize the fact that it, try to emphasize the benefits, but also just emphasize the the fact that it's just a better banking experience and it's not difficult to switch. You know, there is a little bit of pain. You still have to do a few, you know, you have to set up a few standing orders again. Like it didn't work perfectly smoothly. Um, but the current account switch service does make it super easy. But do you think um, feature parity is product parity? And what I mean by that is, do you think just um, copying what they do will mean that I, I don't lose any more customers? I.e. if Barclays suddenly did what a Starling or a Monzo did, would I have switched? Um, well, pr- I probably wouldn't have switched if I thought that it was exactly the same and exactly as good, but I can't really imagine it being. Like, they were adding a few features, and I know they're trying to do more, but it's still, like, it takes ages to load. You can just tell it's not the same. Um, but it and, becomes um, an aggressive proposition, doesn't it? Because essentially what I started describing is, that, give me a reason to leave, and I might consider leaving you. What you're describing is, give me a reason to stay. And, and yeah. I think we have transitioned from people only leaving their bank if something went terribly wrong, whereas now, with the optionality being there, it's give me a reason to stay. And that could be as dramatic as, as, as you switching, or the death by a thousand cuts of not switching, but actually not doing anything the that is profitable. The zombie account scenario. Exactly. This is yeah. The zombie account where... Which um, is worse from, we, a, from a cost perspective. Well, yeah, because now I've got all the cost of serving the account mm-hmm. without any of the net interest margin. That's right. Um, so now my loss leading account where I was going to cross-sell isn't doing any business with me. They're just getting their salary and moving it out, living somewhere else where somebody else sees all of the data and can take advantage of that data to do interesting things with and cross-sell to me and, and do other oh, things. Oh, and even the more traditional banking things of if you're your salary gets paid in, but the deposit initially gets distributed to a number of other accounts, either for savings purposes or for spending purposes or for your FX. You don't have the data, as you point out, Si. You also don't have the deposits and you don't have the cross and upsell that used to be where 
a, a traditional retail bank would only make money on you two or three products down the line. So actually, it's almost worse if people don't switch and just leave those ghost accounts loitering. Mm. Indeed. All right, I've got to move us on. Um, this story comes from SCMP. Um, and Alipay Hong Kong have won a bid to provide QR code payment solutions for Hong Kong's mass transit. Um, and so commuters will have the option of entering the mass transit stations using their Alipay HK account um, to a separate MTR app and scanning, linking the account to a separate app and scanning a QR code on their smartphones uh, on the readers installed at the entry gates. Uh, users of mainland Alipay will also be able to link their accounts. Um, the aim is to have the new payment system to roll out to 91 of the 93 stations uh, by mid-2020. Um, and the commercial director of MTR said Alipay was selected from a number of bidders because of its technology and speed. Um, again, this is, uh, I guess in, in Hong Kong, this is positioned to compete with Octopus. You know, Octopus was the beginning of contactless or, or one of the very first contactless uh, installations in the world. Um, but uh, this is quite different um, to, to Octopus. You know, it, grew, it was this, uh, you had almost this Galapagos situation in uh, Hong Kong where uh, the Octopus card was this thing that was being used on this island and nowhere else. And contactless was the, the thing that they were able to drive. And yet now you see coming from mainland China, arguably something that's lower tech in QR codes. And it looks like it's one and their ability to execute is key, even though the experience of QR codes may actually be a bit more fiddly than contactless. Pretty interesting. And maybe this is just to deal with tourism. Maybe it's not. But interesting uh, trend to watch. Everything seems to be going, turning up Chinese in the region. Am I the only one who's wondering why the other two stations are not being serviced? 91 of 93. Yeah. Um, mm. Can I lose sleep over this? Now? I don't know. I mean, the, I mean, us in Europe, we we see uh, QR codes as being, um, you know, old school technology and not really uh, the the coolest thing. But I mean, it's there's there's more people paying using their phones using QR codes um, in the world than there are doing anything else. So I mean, w- w- we just see that that uh, the contactless should should be the thing. I mean, it it. It's it's another Alipay does a thing and wins stuff and and increases its its share, but I think it's uh, it's it'd be interesting to see if um, if the QR thing comes into Europe a bit more now. That's why I find this so interesting because it's a market where contactless is established with mass yeah. transit, where QR codes are now being installed, where you've got a lot of people who don't have contactless cards mm. who are coming in with a phone that have an Alipay wallet, which wins. Uh, this will be one to watch for sure. Any any other thoughts on this one? I just think you can you can you can just the QR codes. Uh, you know, in defense of QR codes, you can just transmit so much information. Uh, it's 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 amazing. So it'd be it'd be good to see if um, yeah, be be it, an interesting one to watch. It goes back on one of my favorite memes of all time, um, which uh, when I first got into mobile banking more than ten years ago, it was sort of it had a flowchart and it was called a handy flowchart, and it said, "Should I use a QR code?" And the arrow went down, and it said, "No." Um, and then the arrow below that said, "But what if?" Question mark dot 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 and the arrow below said that just no um which is generally still my perception on qr codes in developed Mm. markets but my goodness in developing markets is it a different story it's the opposite story and Mm. it's an interesting way you can see why from the commercial perspective as a vendor as a merchant as a bank you would want the qr code used from a customer perspective 
once you've built the habit, you're good to go. It's all about yeah. behavior change. And yeah. if you've got a lot of people that know that behavior, um, that's, right. that's key. All right. Uh, next story comes from TechCrunch. Uh, Plastic uh, has raised $27 million um, at, uh, at 2x plus value. Um, to let you pay for anything on credit. I don't know what that means, TechCrunch head, headline writer, but okay. Um, so they raised their Series C, and um, they are uh, doubling their valuation. Ah, okay. Um, and they've got a total of $73 million. <laughs> 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 All right, room. There we go. <laughs> All right, so Aww. look, here's how plastic works. For a flat 2.5% fee, customers use plastic through a credit card and it issues a proper wire transfer, check or deposit for up to $500,000 or even more on the customer's behalf. Um, Plastic plans to add more than 100 people to its current team of 60. Um, Something really interesting in this use case for a US market about using sort of these these different rails, um, using a credit card and issuing wire transfers, using a credit card and doing a check, using a credit card and depositing. Kind of an interesting, like we were talking something earlier about something that's uniquely sort of developing markets. This is uniquely U.S. market, um, but they've this is a you know Kleiner Perkins, the VC here, a serious heavyweight VC that have uh, mm. gone for it. And the headline really is like, "Let you pay for anything on credit." Um, kind of interesting. Do you want to pay for anything on credit as well and pay a two point five percent fee? Mm. Mm. I guess the interesting question is, how does that? 2.5% flat fee stack up against alternative credit options. Yeah. And that, you know, presumably is a, a difficult thing for a business owner or an individual to work out. And also, like, buying things as a business, the accounts payable, accounts receivable, it's just horrific. Uh, it, it's an incredibly painful process to buy anything as a business. So we've seen a lot of purchasing cards mm. kind of uh, appear in the last sort of two to five years, uh, <clears throat> three to five years even. Uh, I don't know why I went with two. Is that two X still in my head? Um, that, that sort of solve a part of the problem. Um, they work probably quite well for expenses, but that whole virtual card will give you a card so that you can buy a thing, purchasing card thing, works to a point, but it doesn't allow you to buy things the most common way businesses buy and sell things to each other, which is to raise an invoice and then do a wire transfer. So putting this on a card sort of gets you halfway between the two. You've got the experience of a card, all of the controls of a card, everything you get from being able to automate the processes, look after the team. Um, so it's this weird hybrid. I just found this one really interesting. It's, it's an interesting one that you have to wonder how painful is the invoice financing process mm. for a small business for them to forego it and all the benefits that would go with it financially yeah. to go for this that gives them breathing room, but at a, at a really high premium because... The time is not worth it because the pain is not – because we know that that part of banking is still difficult and clunky and slow. And the smaller the the merchant or the business needing that sort of mm. transaction banking support, the harder it is to interface with the organizations exactly. that offer it. We know that's a, a the challenge. The cash flow thing is a real that's issue. That's right. So, so you look at this and wonder, is this selling into – the vulnerability of a market of smaller merchants that just don't have the bandwidth to mm. to deal with the people who 
provide the invoice financing because they have a kind of a one-size-fits-all no matter who you are. I would say this is a sort of competitor to market invoice and that sort of um, invoice financing type of startup. This is dealing with the issue that um, I might, I don't know when I'm going to get paid. I need cash now. Cash is king for small businesses. Uh, mm. And so this is a way to uh, have, use a line of credit that you already have in terms of a credit card uh, and then use it in different ways. Use it to make wire transfers. So using your credit card that you already had that line of credit you already had to do more i think it's just, it's an interesting sort of little hack um but also um apparently quite a few people are using it so it's going to be interesting to watch well, i think we should also shout out i mean we're recording this on um thanksgiving day as well so god bless uh, us fintech and uh, <laughs> and solutions like this hopefully it's going to be a really good year for them happy thanksgiving everyone in the us and sam um, already, <laughs> this next story comes from the FT. Uh, CYBG are going to fund loans paid back through employers. So they've partnered with uh, UK fintech group Salary Finance. Um, and the founders of Salary Finance uh, include uh, former head of Google UK. Um, and Salary Finance, if you're not familiar with it, enables employees to take out loans that are then repaid automatically through their employer's payroll system. Services currently offered at um, institutions raising ranging from British Telecom, uh, Dixon's Carphone, and NHS Trusts and Schools. Um, sector has grown rapidly in recent years, drawing attention from big investors, including Goldman and Legal in general. Deducting payments automatically from salaries makes the loans more secure, more attractive to banks because your risk is lower, allowing them to extend the credit at a cheaper rate. And, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of reasons why it makes sense. The, C- the CYBG CEO, David Duffy said, having other firms as partners was a way to prepare yourself to be a participant rather than having something done for you. So, I mean, they're financing this thing on the back end, but letting somebody else manage the issuance of the loan and managing the relationship with the corporates. Um, CYBG have been partnering quite a bit, and this all comes on the back of their takeover of Virgin Money um, and a whole bunch of interesting things happening around there. I think they're also partnered with Cabbage, if I'm not Mm. mistaken, um, and one or two others. They've sort of done partnering in a really interesting way, which is um, the fintech does the distribution, they provide the financing, which is a model that sort of works if you just focus on it and execute it. I think it's it's a really interesting niche in the market. I think there's two really interesting things about it. One is it, it... goes towards solving the origination challenge which most fintech lenders for which most fintech lenders that is the the major challenge um particularly the larger ones they build up track records to the point now that they're not struggling to attract institutional capital but they're constantly thinking about innovative ways of finding new borrowers if you're able to just work with employers like the nhs or whatever to actually plug into them directly that's really really interesting the other thing is there's a really big competitor to salary finance which is called neighbor and a, co- a neighbor reckon that salary finance basically just copy them um and salary finance got money from legal in general neighbors got money from goldman sachs and they're kind of moving in lockstep and it'll be really interesting to see which of them you know which of them actually emerges as the winner yeah i think it's an interesting sector for sure any thoughts mm. on this one Dave? Um, yeah, I think I think it's uh, it's an interesting space. There, there's one at uh, level 39, Salary Fits, uh, mm-hmm. I think, uh, which is a pretty cool company as well. Really big uh, in Brazil and uh, a good company. But I, I think it's a it's a nice way of financing things, you know. So uh, and, from a and bank's perspective, you've got uh, a lot more data. You know that mm-hmm. somebody is employed, yeah. uh, so you don't have to do an employment check. Um, you know that they're getting, you know, when they're getting paid. You know how much they're getting paid. I mean, mm-hmm. from a, a credit scoring perspective, this is this is. The 
the, the gold mine of data Absolutely. that you'd wish for. And actually, I wonder if salary finance has a future reselling that data and becoming a competitor with Experian, because my God, that data would be an absolute gold mine for credit scoring. Simon I- has kept my banker hat. Because you're absolutely right, from a bank's perspective, this is a dream. And the reality is 10, 15 years ago, we would only see ideas like that come out of Latin America and Mm -hmm. Africa and the kind of the places in the world where I'm from. Um, Mm. The fact that these ideas are taking root in the UK and actually government entities has a slightly less jubilant sociological implication that Mm -hmm. we are actually pushing more and more of our society towards subsistence living. And it's sad. Uh, Yeah, Mm. there's, there's, there's a sadness about like, if employ if this is having to if be done, if there's a need pe- for this, there yeah. is a sociological challenge. But flipping it on its head, people do find themselves in positions of you know uh, for not their fault, being in times of distress, and this can also be very beneficial. Debt isn't intrinsically a bad thing if it's offered responsibly. It can enable you to Absolutely. unlock your future. Absolutely, but we can't deny the fact that if there is a growing market for this kind of service, mm-hmm. there is an associated. Mm. Pattern so emerging. I, I would argue that there was always a market for this service. The service just didn't exist. It was an unmet need. Um, and it was just hard to pull off. Like um, employee uh, benefits services were kind of clunky until quite recently. And they've gotten a lot better. And doing things like this makes a lot of sense. This is basically just a consumer loan, isn't it? It's just a, it's just a consumer loan. But they found a way through the salary deduction mechanism of making it hopefully more affordable for the borrower. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily a new asset class as such. I think I think anything that allows people to be recognised and and use services and and get finance at the point of need is a really good thing. And I think that um, you know, in, in in the absence of a digital identity and 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 uh, and and great platforms in the UK, I think anything that allows people to know, look, this is exactly who this person is, who's going to be paid at this time of the month, and uh, and give them finance to get them out of a hole. Well, then this is a great thing, because. I like great things. All right, um, time for the last story because we've been running long on the show, but there's just so much fintech news, goddammit. I am not going to try and read this headline. I was hoping producer Laura would read it for me, but she's too shy. So um, this story comes from Business Insider. Come on, Sai. No, I don't. You get three tries. Do it. Okay, if you're a Harry Potter fan, I'm sorry. Um, This is me phonetically pronouncing something Laura wrote down for me. Um, It's... Winger Guardian oh, Leviosa, not Wingy Guardian Leviosa. Oh. Okay, man, okay. Fail. My Let son, Dave do it. Yeah, yeah. My Let son Dave Noah would love this. It's Wingardium Leviosa. I think that's it. And this is how you do it, Simon. Yeah. Okay. Let, Dave, let Dave go with it. Let, it it's just a thing. It's like let a Dave thing you say when you wave the wand and do a spell. Right. Okay. So hundreds yeah. of Apple stores are going to start <laughs> selling British startups Harry Potter coding wand. Um, and coding, uh, computing and coding startup Kano, uh, who were originally based in Whitechapel, I believe, um, is going to release its Harry Potter coding wand in hundreds of Apple stores. The CEO uh, and founder, Alex Klein, told Business Insider that Apple approached Kano to get the wands into the stores. From December to January, people will 
be able to demo the wand. Uh, and British coding and computing startup Kano struck a partnership with Apple uh, to sell it across more than 300 Apple stores across the US, UK, Australia, and New Zealand. Um, so this is a physical device that works in tandem with their app. And in the tandem. app allows kids to build blocks of code, which are then translated into Harry Potter spells. Um, and clearly, Laura's first line here in the in the uh, show notes is, is one for the for the potheads um coding is uh, coding is magic anyone who says different is a muggle and and you are a total muggle yeah well apparently so do you um, know what a muggle is i have no idea <laughs> okay seriously can we can we like make him feel really isolated for the next 10 minutes I, I I was a sci-fi guy. I, like if, if there's it, no excuse. There's like the zeitgeist of your time. Anyway, mm. um, homework for you is watch a Harry Potter Potter movie. No, you can't come back me. I oh. won't do it. Anyway, this is good, right? Because this means kids that more kids, good. kids That's coding, right. good. Yes, well done, Apple. You're the savior. Uh, Kano, uh, really interesting. So, if you're not familiar with uh, Kano or Kano or whatever they're called, um, they are a startup that basically has a build-your-own-computer homebrew thing. Sort of think Raspberry Pi, but with like um, a Kano built in. Hence Kano, uh, and they. Are, uh, they allow you to sort of build your own kit computers, build your own keyboard, put the screen together, um, and then they have a whole bunch of things that help you learn. They have lots of partnerships with schools. Um, and look, coding is the future, and it's great um, f- fun ways to get kids into STEM while they're young, and it's a creative way. Like, yes, I, I am fully for this sort of thing. Uh, here's for more uh, crossovers of interesting like movie brands and big companies and small companies doing interesting things. It'll be super exciting to see uh, what they do and how they do it. I'm sure there will be some youngsters quite disappointed that they can't cause things to levitate by by using this wand. But anything that gets kids excited about the kind of creativity you can you can have when you can cut code is amazing. Does anybody remember Barclays Code Playground? Yes. I actually thought that was quite good. Like I not not that I'm playing with it right now or happen to have spent quite a long time when I worked there playing with Barclays um, Code Playground, but it, it is I think this sort of stuff has a future. It's a different way of doing engagement with uh, parents of kids who might also want banking and might also want a relationship with your brand. Mm. Um, it's a different way of doing CSR in a way that's not just going into schools and doing something that's like oh this is what money is. This is this is different, and I think it, uh, I hope we see more of it. Alrighty, uh, that wraps up another week's show in which I have bungled headlines, uh, not gotten Harry Potter references, but hopefully got us through the entire show. Um, thank you so much to our guests for keeping us on track and, and making sense of what I've tried to say. Um, Dave, where can people find out more about you? Um, well, Privity, we do consent management and uh, hopefully we'll be on the show pretty soon with lots of good news to share about stuff that we're doing. Um, but uh, for me, you can uh, at Dave Barna is on Twitter or um, usually uh, liking all the FinTech Insider posts and stuff like that. A shout out to you, my friend. And uh, liking everything we do at 11fspulse.com, I'm sure. Cheap plug, cheap plug. It is. Uh, <laughs> apparently, it is the Netflix of um, of FinTech. Apparently so. That That is what the people are saying. Yeah. Um, Ryan, how about your good self? Uh, well, you can find out more about me at altfi.com, which is a, a sort of FinTech news service um, or shameless plug for me. Uh, there's a book on Amazon by me, which is a satire of disruptive tech, and that's called Pimple. So. Oh, Wow. Yeah, okay. I'm Christmas going to check that list out. Sorted. That's, that's hitting the Christmas list. Excellent. And um, what about you, Lita? 
at Leader Glyptis or opposite Simon in the office. Or yeah, wandering away man. from your desk <laughs> because you're, you can't sit down. Um, as for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or wondering where Leader went. Um, <laughs> all right, what do you think of today's stories, listeners? Uh, let us know at Fintech Insiders on Twitter. And don't forget, if you love the show, leave us a review. Uh, and you can also leave us a five-star review in which you say, despite the fact that Simon knows nothing about Harry Potter, we still like Fintech Insiders. That's fine. Um, and then I'll thank you very much for listening. Goodbye for now. Bye.